tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, here we are, and where I am, it's afternoon. I, I don't know what it is where you are, but here we are, which is, it's hard to be there. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle them in the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, we're doing a letter show again today, uh, so I won't be taking calls. I'm catching up on all sorts of letters from <laughs> months ago. You know, I get these good letters, and I, I don't want to throw them out. I, 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 I like to read them. If you've written a letter and it hasn't been answered and you really want an answer, be persistent resend it but uh i get a lot of letters well all right that said let's open the big book on the coffee table well we are plowing through saint paul's second letter to the corinthians and of course i'm going to want to look at the whole chapter again chapter 11 that's the chapter we're in uh the reading specifically today is 11 verse 18 and then we jump to the 21st verse the to the 30th and and uh, I, I want to even look at that so let's let's just look at the whole the whole letter or the whole whether the whole chapter uh, chapter 11 um, you know the second Corinthians uh, it, it seems that Paul wrote four letters that we've heard about uh, he in I think it's in first Corinthians he refers to the former letter and then in second Corinthians he talks about the letter of of uh, um, uh, well, he, there's when he talks about the letter of tears, uh, and he worries about I've written you a harsh letter, that sort of thing. It's it's kind of complicated to figure, but it seems that there were four letters to the Corinthians, of which we have the second and the fourth, believe it or not. Uh, so, but we call them Corinthians one and two. I, it's. Um, Oh, I don't want to. Yeah, why not? I'll go there. It's it's fascinating to me to think about how these letters were put into a what they call a corpus, a body, uh, the Pauline corpus, the 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 body of the letters of Saint Paul. And one of the theories which I particularly love uh, is that it was done by Onesimus, who was the slave mentioned in uh, Saint Paul's letter uh, to Philemon. Uh, in his letter to Philemon, he, he 
which he sends by means of this slave Onesimus, who's a runaway slave, who has become a believer. He, he begs Philemon to accept him as a brother and, and sends him back to Ephesus because that's legally what they had to do. Uh, people get upset by that. Paul should have said, you, you, you shouldn't be a slave. You, you, slavery is wrong. Well, slavery is wrong, and Christianity did away with slavery. But slavery is, is the human condition. There are millions, I think, is it 50 million slaves in the world today? Uh, <clears throat> slavery is, is, is a fact that you can't get rid of no matter how evil it is. And it is evil. Uh, there are different forms of slavery, but in the ancient Roman world, boy, am I off the topic, but that's <laughs> what I do. Uh, in the ancient Roman world, slavery was part of the social contract. Either you were uh, too cowardly to be a free man and you were captured in war by brigandage, or you, you, uh, were, were, you'd put yourself down as collateral on a loan. So it's part of the social contract. And, and slaves, very interestingly, and under certain circumstances, slaves could have property. In fact, slaves could own slaves. It's a very strange system by our thought. So um, this slave Onesimus, the, the legally correct thing to do is send him back to Philemon, but Paul pleaded with Philemon to be merciful. And that letter to Philemon is the only strictly personal letter in the tech in the in the in the writings of saint paul and the theory is because the bishop of the second or third bishop of ephesus was was uh, philemon or rather it was onesimus and it's not a usual name it was a small community so it's probable that onesimus was freed by philemon and uh was prominent in the church in Ephesus. <clears throat> and uh, it's thought that he gathered all the letters he could of St. Paul uh, to put them in into a single a single volume. Uh, and that's the theory, that, that Onesimus, in gratitude for what Paul had done in his life and for the, the gift of God that he'd received through the ministry of Paul, gathered together whatever letters were circulating in western in western turkey um and put them into one one volume that's that's a theory and i i i i think it's quite possible and i would even almost say probable um maybe not but it's a salt shake a grain of salt it's a beautiful thing uh but he didn't get all the letters Paul had written. Paul wrote a lot more letters than the ones we have. Well, wouldn't shouldn't we find them? Couldn't we find them? What if archaeologists did find them? No, this is the canon of scriptures. These are the letters that that the Holy Spirit decided working through the ministry of the church should be in the New Testament. All right, that's just a little a little sidebar. Well, chapter eleven says, "If only you would put up a little foolishness from me." Please put up with me. This word foolishness is, uh, it's a very interesting word because it isn't, when we think of a fool, we think of someone who does and says goofy things. But this really, the word is afrosune. Uh, um, it means uh, someone who doesn't think before he talks. It's, uh, it's someone who has no kind of filter. Uh, it's, phronimos means thoughtful, uh, someone who looks before he leaps. Afron is the opposite. That A is called an alpha privative. It means, um, 
it means a lack of, like someone is moral, someone is amoral. An amoral person isn't an immoral person. An amoral person is without morals. They have no moral compass. So that, that's an A privative, an alpha privative. And that's, that's the word here that St. Paul is talking about. And when we get to the reading of the day, uh, you'll see how that works. So he's saying, I'm going to speak foolishly. Uh, you know, I, I betroth you as one husband. We talked about that yesterday. Um, then he goes on, uh, to, to, uh, his, his, let's, let's jump ahead to verse 16, uh, of the 11th chapter. I repeat, no one consider me foolish. And that word is, uh, I, I would, I can't remember if it's a fronty most, but it's, it's this word of meaning, meaning, uh, um, without risk, without consideration, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. Um, <clears throat> now I'm reading, I'm reading through the chapter, not, not just, I've clicked on the, the, the reference that the USCCB provides. And I'm looking at the whole chapter, uh, chapter 11. Many boast according to the flesh. I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools. And this is again, that word people who have no, no, who, who don't look before they leap. For if you put up with someone who enslaves you or devours you or gets the better of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face, What's he talking about? Well, 2 Corinthians, uh, we see there's a fellow who caused a lot of trouble. He men- doesn't mention him by name, but early on in the letter, he, I think in the first chapter, he talks about someone who has caused you all sorts of trouble. Um, well, you put up with this guy. Well, you finally kind of be nice to him because you tossed him out. So, you know, be nice to him. Uh, St. Paul says you took care of it. You, you rejected what this person was doing. Now be kind to him. Um, but he's saying you'll put up with anybody. Now this, this comes to the heart of the letter. Verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. And he goes on he, earlier in the letter. He talks about <clears throat> uh, the, the, the glory with which the old law was received, how much more glorious is this this new covenant? So um, uh, he goes on. Uh, there are apparently people coming to Corinth saying, "Oh, you gotta, you can't eat pork. You gotta be circumcised. You can't do this. You can't do that. You gotta follow the law of Moses." And this Paul, don't pay any attention to him. He's not really an apostle. He just sort of jumped jumped in late. And so Paul is again defending his apostolate, defending his right to and his obligation to, to um, um, preach the gospel. So then, verse twenty-three: Are they ministers of Christ? And this word is 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 deacons. I'm still uh, far more with far greater labors, more imprisonments, and he goes on on far worse beatings, numerous brushes with death. Five times the hands of the Jews I receive. This is the great kvetch, I call it. A kvetch is that's uh, a Yiddish word meaning kvetch. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It means to complain, to to, to grouse. And uh, uh, he's on frequent uh, journeys, dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own race, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers, see, dangers among false brothers. You see, the, the church was perfect when it began. Not so much. Um, and apart from these things, there's the daily pressure upon me, uh, my anxiety for all the churches. So Paul is, 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 is talking about his, his 
absolute devotion to uh, uh, to his ministry and to the people he's serving in 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 Corinth. So. Um, um, This this is a, a Paul loves these people. He loves the church he established, and and I think this is the words he uses uh, are very telling. He talks about about being a, a deacon, uh, the ministry of, of 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 service that he has. He's he's a servant, a, a deacon. So it's very very lovely stuff. So. Oh, the gospel. We'll talk about, oh, I, I suppose uh, we're getting, we should probably take a break. But Jesus said to his disciples, do not store up for yourself treasures in heaven. This is Matthew, the sixth chapter. Um, it seems not to follow. Uh, he, he he talks about don't store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. But or on earth, but store up treasures in heaven for your treasure is there also will you be. Then he jumps to the lamp of the body is the eye. If your eye is sound, the, your whole body will be filled with light. If your eye is bad, the whole body will be in darkness. And if the light in you is darkness, how great will the, tre- the darkness be? Where your treasure is there also will your heart be. And then the, if the light in you is darkness, how great will the darkness be? <sighs> It seems not to follow. I, I've heard this called uh, uh, the stringing of pearls. In other words, uh, it's just nice sayings that are thrown in together. I don't believe that. I believe that the Holy Spirit has arranged these things in the text so that one thing follows the other. You know, um, I think the idea of a treasure is... is, is uh, is central to this whole passage. Your treasure, have, have you ever called uh, called one of your children, oh, the light of my life? Mother used to, I think she was joking, but she used to say, how are you, light of my life? Um, that, that what we really value is what gives light to us. It, it guides us. We focus on what we treasure. And so Jesus is saying, don't Keep your gaze fixed on the treasures that the earth offers. I think there's a relationship between treasure and and light. Um, <clears throat> we use the verb in English. We use the verb treasure. Uh, we use the word treasure as a verb also. I treasure the time I spent with you. When when we talk about that, it means we remember. We're holding this in our gaze. So. What I, I think, what are you looking at? If your eye is sound, your whole body will be filled with light. If you're looking at the right things, you're, whole, you're, you're filled with light, your whole, your whole being. And if, the light, if you're looking at something that is dark, that is wrong, that is sinful, uh, how great will the darkness be? So I think that's how these are related. So store up treasures in heaven. Uh, keep your gaze on heaven. Uh, the virtue of hope <clears throat> isn't just kind of an optimism. The virtue of hope is is a fixed awareness that this earth is not our home, that that we're meant for heaven. Uh, I think that's an important thing. So, well, let's go to a break. Um, we will come back with some letters. And uh, again, I'm sorry, I'm not going to open the phones today, but we will... Uh, Catch up on letters, because boy, we got a lot of letters. I got a lot of letters. 
Our sponsor, the University of Dallas, invites you to check out The Quest, a five-episode video series on discovering our purpose and living it with courage. Start watching The Quest for free at relevantradio.com slash quest. This is a great song. Aretha Franklin. Think. This is actually what the verb in our text and the noun, or rather the adjective, I'm sorry, verb, noun, adjective, one of those things, is exactly what the adjective in our, our text means. Think. St. Paul is calling himself thoughtless. Let me, I'm not going to think, I'm just going to brag. Uh, it's... Um, He's really exasperated. Uh, he really loves these people and won't cut him any slack. All right, let us go on to letters. There are sins. This is from Margaret in Phoenix. There are sins that are easy to keep hidden. Gluttony is not one of them. As an obese person, I often wonder what a priest thinks when I come out to receive Holy Communion. Does he want to refuse my request to receive? Does this thought ever go through your mind? Gluttony is one of the capital sins. When I confess this sin and the priest and ask the priest's opinion, if it's a mortal sin, I receive various answers. Even um, uh, on relevant radio, uh, there have been guests who have different opinions. Even on relevant radio, guests with different opinions? I I often attend daily mass, and each time I receive, and I've wondered, I'm committing a sacrilege. No, you're not committing a sacrilege. I mean, if if you were in, you know, the point at which one of the, the, the capital sins uh, or the deadly sins becomes a mortal sin, um, it's kind of hard to say. Uh, everyone has tendencies to pride and to avarice and to lust and all these things. The reason they're called deadly sins or capital sins, I believe, is because they are in essence vices. And a vice is, consumes you. And when you stop fighting the vice, it consumes you. Um, if one gives in to lust completely and it consumes them, well, then it is a mortal sin. If one gives in to avarice completely so that one is, is, is uh, ruining people's lives for the sake of gain, then, yeah, it can be a mortal sin. But... In general, I don't think that it's necessarily so that one of the one of the seven deadly sins is mortal. They're deadly because they are consuming vices. And a habit, I say this constantly, a habit of vice is only overcome with a habit of virtue. Um, the, 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 uh, uh, the habit of the vice of gluttony, uh, over, of overeating... One, there are certain habits in eating that can help you overcome it. Um, and also, uh, you know, this may sound controversial, but, you know, I, I've struggled with weight my whole life, and I come from a long line of people who've struggled with weight. Um, the, the, uh, um, I think most Americans do. We're designed to eat as much as we can because in days long past, uh, you didn't know when you're going to get your next meal. So if there was a meal, you ate. 
<laughs> I remember a great friend of mine, may he rest in peace. Um, he, he's a real saint. Jim, I think many of you are listening. Some of you are listening might know who he is. He was a soup kitchen director. And uh, <clears throat> he said he was on the parking lot uh, at school, the play lot. And he heard kids talking about having leftovers uh, at, at home uh, for dinner tonight. And uh, he didn't know what leftovers were. He grew up in a house with four boys, four healthy Wisconsin boys. And uh, he went home and said to his mom, Mom, what are leftovers? He said, don't worry, we never have them. So, you know, with four boys, you ate what you could when you could. Uh, and, and I think that that's an important thing to understand. Uh, we're designed to eat. So to eat moderately is a great challenge. But, and also it may be true that there are some people who metabolize things differently. I I remember reading a book called, years ago, Diets Don't Work. It was by a guy who had no weight problem, but he ran uh, he ran health spas, and he would test every diet to make sure it wasn't awful that, that he prescribed for his customers. And then he noticed he'd put on some weight, and he decided to really go on a diet. And the more he dieted, the more weight he gained. Uh, there's, I remember listening to a TED Talk by a... a a very interesting uh, woman who was a doctor, I forget of what, but a very well-educated woman. And she pointed out that the surest indicator that a woman is going to be overweight in later life is that she goes on a diet in her adolescence or before that, um, that, that we make food an issue. And a healthy attitude to food is that it is something that fuels the body. We eat to live, not live to eat. And as with any of the deadly sins, you develop, you got to develop habits. I don't eat at this time. Pick one thing, one thing to, to fight against. You know, that, that I've heard it said, if you do something regularly for a month, you'll do it for the rest of your life. So work on this. I'm not going to eat after dinner. When I'm done with dinner at six o'clock or whenever I'm finished with dinner, no food um, to get into a habit or to always eat in the same place. There are habits you can get into. And I'm saying all this because if you are in any way trying to resist gluttony, then you are not committing a mortal sin of gluttony, I believe. So I, I hope that helps a little, Margaret. You know, Americans, we we are a, a nation of overweight people because we're prosperous. Uh, but that that the motto should be we we eat to live, not live to eat. And, you know, there's no legitimate pleasure that's denied the Christian. C.S. Lewis says that in his Scrutape letters. And, um, you know, food is a great gift from the Lord, and it should be enjoyed. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, when it consumes us, then we're in trouble. I, I don't know. That's <laughs> You've hit, a, you've hit a, 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 what's the word, a button with me. All right, let's go to, uh, um, uh, let's see. Uh, this is from Lucy. Hi, Father. Uh, I asked about the word perturbed in relation to Jesus' reaction to when Martha and her uh, confession that she believes in him and in the resurrection. Am I reading this right? Let me get my glasses on to make sure I'm not messing up here. You mentioned that the word meant he was deeply wounded or angered. I'm still a little confused as to his reaction. Why would he be angered? Why would he be angered or wounded by her saying that? He was, I think he, you know, I think he was not angry at Martha. I think he was um, angry at death and angry at the, at the, 
I suspect, you know, the, the false show of grief. Uh, we see that um, when the daughter of Jairus uh, uh, died and was raised to life by Jesus, uh, when he said, Talitha kum, in the Gospel of Mark, little girl arise, uh, death was a big deal. Well, it is a big deal, but in the ancient world, uh, um, you know, uh, they had burial societies, a proper funeral was everything, this kind of exaggerated grief uh, and hopelessness angered the Lord. I don't think he was angry at the person, but angry at death and angry at hopelessness. Uh, um, the verb embrimalma is 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 about a reaction that you can see. He was visibly upset. Uh, and and this isn't, you know, the usual thing is we're kind of unctuous in our grief. He was upset by death, I think. I think that might be part of it. Um, and upset by a lack of trust. We don't like to think of Jesus that way, but that verb embrimomai is, is applied to Jesus quite frequently in the scriptures. So... I don't know what to tell you, Lydia, but yeah, that, 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 uh, uh, good and gentle Jesus was good and gentle, but he had an anger and God has an anger in him that is appropriate. I said, well, if God can get angry, I can get angry. No, I'm not God. (laughs) I need to watch my anger. The scripture does say be angry, but do not sin. So there are things that one can get angry about, but People aren't one of them. I don't think Jesus got angry so much at people as at the situation. Just just a thought. All right. Um, <clears throat> this is from Louise, who's often been tempted to write in cursive. I wonder if people understand what cursive writing is. I have heard that young people today can't understand cursive writing. Cursive writing, it comes from the word to run in Latin. Uh, uh, that, that that you just keep the pen running. In other words, the letters are joined. Uh, it's related actually to our word for course, as in a race course. So it has nothing to do with cursing. Okay, move along. <laughs> I think that's why they call the little thing that runs across your computer a cursor. But, well, <laughs> with me, there may be a different meaning. All right, this is from Rick in San Luis Obispo. I've been, Father, there's so many signs, uh, so many tra- are trying to figure out what, what the sign is. Uh, a fundamentalist playing it safe or only mainly sticking to the words in the Bible. To me, a fundamentalist is one who goes into a flower garden, sees the beauty, but not too much able to smell the beauty. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose, to, I'm having a hard time asking what figuring out what the question is. Um, Many clergy and later standing upright for the Lord, which needs to continue to help. I'm not quite sure what you're driving at, but um, the reason I'm interested in your letter here, well, it's a letter and I try to read them all and answer them, but uh, a strict fundamentalist. I think people need to understand what fundamentalism really is. It's, It's become someone who takes the Bible with absolute literal, uh, li- absolute literal inter- interpretation. And the Bible is not a book. It's a library. It's, we believe, 70 books. I think that, that non-Catholics, uh, many Protestants only have 63. We're very blessed in that we have 70. Uh, but 
those books contain in them poetry. They contain in them law. They contain history. They can they they have parables in them. They have visions in them. And when you treat a vision like a history or a history like a law book, uh, you're going to get all messed up. For instance, uh, the history of Abraham. Uh, we read that Abraham had lots of concubines, and he lied about his wife. And he, he Abraham had issues. Uh, well, if Abraham had more than one wife, can't we? No, that's history. It's not law. And we see that Jesus clearly says that a man leaves his mother and father and clings to his woman, that, that he's talking about monogamy. Uh, in the Old Testament, things were permitted because, as Jesus says, of the hardness of the hearts. But uh, when you take history and say, well, Abraham did it or David did it, that means I can do it. That's history. That's not law. And you take a, a, a parable, you know, the story of Jonah that you mentioned may be a parable. I don't know. I wasn't there. There is no archaeological evidence that the Assyrians in the capital, in their capital of Nineveh ever uh, worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or that they were converted by Jonah. It may be a parable. Uh, oh, yeah, it's history. Maybe, but you see what I mean? That 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 that's what we think fundamentalism is. That everything is taken as uh, as as absolute scientific history, and the sense of history of ancient people is very different from our sense of history. What fundamentalism really is, um, it's a reaction to the liberal Protestantism of the late nineteenth, early twentieth century. And there were people who were reacting to the the uh, form critical method being applied increasingly by Protestant scholars, especially in Germany, that bled over into the Catholic Church. Uh, that that form criticism was well. Let's look at the well. Oh dear, I'm off on a tangent, but it's an interesting tangent. Uh, f- the the books of of the ancient world, the Iliad and the Odyssey, which, of course, we call the idiot and the oddity, but uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, oh, boy, did we study those, and I that was I was a Greek major in college, and we studied the Iliad and the Odyssey, and <clears throat> those were as if biblical, as if inspired books taken as absolute history by Romans. Well, uh, scholars in the 1700s in Germany began to look at the different styles of writing, and uh, they said, well, there could not have been a Trojan War, and and this is all just myth, and, uh, you know, well, it upset people greatly, because the Iliad and the Odyssey were, were history as far as they were concerned. Well, it... it no, they're not, uh, the scholars said. It's clear that these are written later and that there's not uh, a consistency in, in the vocabulary. They couldn't have been written by one person and form criticism. They criticized the form of the document. And people began to think, well, if we can do that with the Iliad and the Odyssey, why don't we do that with Scripture? And, well, clearly this was, Genesis was written by four different people, therefore, and they went on. And this was a death blow to classical Protestantism, because classical Protestantism believed in sola scriptura, and the scholars were taking the scriptura away. Sola scriptura, Bible alone. And if you take the Bible away, Protestantism doesn't stand. 
didn't bother Catholics because we've always thought, well, this was a parable. And, uh, you know, St. Ambrose talked about the different senses of Scripture. And from the earliest days, we've, we've realized there are different, different ways to look at Scripture. It didn't bother us that much. But it bled very badly into Catholicism in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and in my youth. But back to the, this, this, this Protestant debiblicization, if that's a word, it is now, uh, there was a reaction to it. One of them was liberalism, that, well, you can take the Bible away, but you can't take my experience away. And that was, that was strictly speaking, the origin of liberalism, how it affects me is the criterion of truth. That bled over into wider things, different areas of life. But one of the reactions was fundamentalism. There was a group of people, I think in the United States, who set out the five fundamentals, a belief in the virgin birth, the divinity of Christ, uh, the atoning death of Christ on the cross, a literal resurrection, and uh, the coming again of the Lord. Oh, and um, I, I think I've added one, but in certain, and, and one of the great things was the infallibility of Scripture. Those were the principles of fundamentalism, of literal virgin birth, atoning death of Christ on the cross, literal resurrection, uh, second coming, and the infallibility of Scripture. Uh, we would, Catholicism in the 1950s was thought of as the world's largest fundamentalist church. Uh, we believe four and a half of those things. We wouldn't say the infallibility of Scripture, but the inerrancy of Scripture when properly interpreted. That's, that's fundamentalism, strictly speaking, but it has come to mean a sort of literalist attitude. So this is a long disquisition on a letter that I'm not sure that I'm really answering the question. To be a fundamentalist is, in its, in its classical description, really describes Catholicism, traditional Catholicism. And I would say in that sense, I am a fundamentalist, but I'm not, I'm not a biblical literist, literalist. You know, I believe that there are parables. I believe that there are, is poetry in the scripture. And to get the meaning of it, you have to understand the context uh, and the history and the times in which it was written. So I don't know, if Rick, if that, and Rick from San Luis Obispo, that answers your question at all, but there we go. Huh. Let's, I got to take a breath. Let's go, let's take a pause and then go to the word of the day. Our sponsor, the University of Dallas, invites you to check out The Quest, a five-episode video series on discovering our purpose and living it with courage. Start watching The Quest for free at relevantradio.com slash quest. Well, these Highway 40 blues, I've walked holding both my shoes, counted the days since I've been gone, and I'd love to see the lights of home. Waste of time and money. Well, who hasn't? All right, let us let us go now to our word of the day. At the end of today's reading, 
St. Paul says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. I just kind of wondered, hmm, the word for weakness is asthenia in Greek. I'm sure that's the word that he uses, which is, I was right, he uses the word asthenia. But what does asthenia mean? Asthenia is, it's got the alpha privative again, the ah, you know, that I was talking about. That, like, aphronimus means without sense. Asthenia means without strength. Uh, uh, St. Paul, this is interesting to me because... I don't think that anyone stronger in history existed than St. Paul, except for maybe Moses and our Lord. I mean, St. Paul, when I read his letters, he's a tough cookie. He doesn't, you know, he's he's going through toil and hardship and sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, frequent fasting, cold and exposure, uh, and anxiety. He was weak that I am not weak. Dogs and cats um, living together. Mass hysteria. Yes. Mass hysteria. It, Asthenia means lack of strength. He's boasting about his lack of strength. So, uh, you know, I think that that's when you're when I remember an old Pentecostal preacher said once, "What you do when you find yourself in tomb? You're supposed to lay down and die." Uh, in other words, to confess our weakness is is to say, "Lord, I can't do it." You take care of it, which is, of course, that beautiful surrender novena. I was just thinking about that. St. Paul, such a strong man. He thought he was a weak man. Okay, let us go back to letters. This this letter is from Lisa um, in Las Vegas. Hello, I realize eating meat on Fridays during Lent is a sin. Having said that, I accidentally ate meat today at lunch, even though I remembered in the morning. Can I make it up tomorrow? Lisa, don't worry about it. You accidentally ate meat you did not commit a sin. You must you must have full turning of the will to commit a sin, and you must have full freedom. You didn't have those. So, Lisa, and you mentioned, can I can I make it up tomorrow? No, you can't make it up tomorrow. It will be a noble thing to to abstain from meat uh, on the next day. I mean, it's a kind of fasting, abstinence. But it isn't necessary. You did not commit a sin because you didn't will to commit a sin. And and I think that that's important to understand. All right, let's go on. Okay. Okay. This is from Leticia. I'm reaching out to you to get information on the Freemason curse. Good grief. I live with my husband, two kids, my mother-in-law. And my mother-in-law's husband was a Freemason. I believe a 32nd degree Mason. He adopted my husband and two other children with, with my, uh, uh, oh, good grief. With my, I think that's a misprint in the text. With my mother. All of the kids have ended up on drugs or simply not of good character. This includes my husband, who's physically and verbally abusive. Does this generational curse get passed on to the stepchild? You know... What can I do to help the situation? If you are being abused, especially physically, uh, you need to, to uh, you know, I would, I would go to, there's an organization called, uh, is, is your husband, let's see here, um, if the abuse involves alcohol, I would certainly go to um, uh, Al-Anon. You need support. Uh, there is no reason to put up with severe mental or physical abuse. 
you need, I would call, uh, you know, if it's severe enough, you need to call the authorities. Um, as to the Freemasons, you know, I, I don't understand curses. I have a number of friends who are exorcists, and they really do think that these things do exist. However, the most powerful uh, way to resist a curse is a good confession. I've also never known an exorcist who didn't say one good confession is worth uh, a, a thousand exorcisms. Um <clears throat> that the devil primarily works in a life through sin. And you have to remember, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I, I, I wish I understood the way that curses worked. But uh, for us as Christians, we resist them by prayer and by staying in a state of grace and by frequent communion. But I think, I think uh, um, uh, Leticia, you really need to... to Find support. Um, I would ask my pastor uh, if if he knows of a support group, a good Christian support group. Uh, I wouldn't go to, to uh, I, would, I would kind of investigate the support group. You don't just want to be angry, but you want to be able to stand up for what is right for yourself. Um, now, as for the curse, uh, uh, I, again, I, I'm, not, I'm not an exorcist. I don't understand these things very well um i i would just really really uh, get help for the physical abuse um you know well but about all these other people you're worried about um well if the oxygen mask drops in an airplane your your instinct if you have a small child is to put that mask on the small child first but they tell you, put the mask on yourself first, because if you are going unconscious, you cannot help the child. There are certain situations in which you have to become healthy first. Then you can help the people around you. So you need to find places that will bring you to, to spiritual and psychological health uh, without first worrying about these other people when you are in a healthy position then you are far more able to help them so i would get support if there's drugs or alcohol involved i would i would look up the nearest alanon group a l i think then dash a n o n and uh, uh, get into a good 12-step program yourself um, the, the the best programs for addiction um and this sort of thing uh, are the twelve-step programs. So I, I hope I'm I'm uh, understanding your situation, and that this abuse also involves drugs and alcohol, as you mentioned, and that 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 would be how I would begin to find the proper support for yourself. Get healthy, then you can get them healthy, and you'll be in my prayers, Leticia. God bless you. Okay, this letter is from Annie in Lacrosse. I haven't, Father, hello, Father Simon, I haven't been able to listen to your show for a long time, and I've missed hearing it. As I was reading Father Rocky's Lenten lesson, a question came to mind that I'd like to ask you. Father Rocky said, in the Roman Missal, it instructs the priest to read the black and do the red. Why is it then priests don't face uh, ad orientum as the Roman Missal assumes he ought uh, to be, according to my husband's spent time? few years in the seminary. I'm not trying to call anyone out. It just seems so odd 
that this practice is brushed aside most of the time. Actually, in a funny kind of way, you do have a point. The the rubrics, let me explain to people. You've got rubrics, which are uh, things in red letters. They instruct the priest what to do in the... Um, <clears throat> in the uh, in the Roman Missal. And then you've got the black, which is what he says. So you've got the rubrics, and I don't know what the, the, we just call it the black. Rubrics are, are, are the, the red letters that tell you what to do. In the beginning of the Roman Missal, it talks about the positioning of the altar. And in Latin, it seems pretty clear that it is desirable that the altar be moved forward with the option of facing the people. It, it, it assumes that you're facing, when you're talking to God, you're facing away from the people. But it does leave the option. And that option has become popular uh, since the council. And uh, it is a legitimate option, according to the Roman Missal. And there are certain places where the bishop very much wants the priest to face the people uh, during the whole liturgy. And as I'm always pointing out, this is the sacrifice of the mass and the sacrifice offered by someone who is disobedient is not acceptable to the Lord. Obedience without obedience, letter to the Hebrews, it is impossible to please God. Well, I'm obeying God. I'm just not obeying the bishop. Unless the bishop is asking you to do something immoral, you obey him. Uh, I think that's very important. Um, uh, This idea of, of, well, I can do as I please. Not not if you're going to be a member of a family. You do what's best for the family. And uh, uh, I personally think that Mass, uh, it's very interesting. The Mass ad Orientum, uh, we offered it uh, when I was a, a pastor at St. Lambert's. We had one Mass that was generally done. It was Novus Ordo, the new, the new Mass. Uh, we did it uh, facing the people. Um, we, well, when we did it, when we were speaking to the people, we faced the people. And when we were speaking to the Lord, we faced ad orientum, toward, ad versus domino, turned toward the Lord. And it just made a great deal of sense. Now, the three other masses in the parish were done, all of them facing the people. Um, I don't think that, that, that one is necessarily better than the other in terms of, uh, Human psychology, one is more useful in certain circumstances, um, but I, I just really mean that 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 obedience is is more important than than what I personally like or prefer. Uh, that that um, you obey, and, and um, that to us, don't forget that the United States is the the first revolutionary republic, and we Americans. Are, are really, you know, the old flag, don't tread on me. Well, politically, that may make sense. But spiritually, that's not our banner. Um, we we are part of a congregation. And uh, I think that to to not be able to talk about these things honestly is, is wrong. There will be other liturgical reforms. And uh, when we, you know, I, I had a call, was it, uh, oh, this was a while ago. It was somebody. This was quite a while ago. It was somebody who uh, uh, the family uh, was divided because some of the the young couple, the younger kids, had found the traditional Latin mass and they loved it. And they're going to the traditional Latin mass and they were going to mass with mom and dad, who are my age, maybe a little younger, 
uh, this was way back in April, and and uh, uh, it was kind of funny because neither neither side would bend, and I thought, this isn't what mass is not. This is not what mass is for. The unbending. This is what I like. Therefore, this is what is right. Mm, that's that's not that's not uh, the faith. So I, I think that. It's it's a tough thing to say, Lord. What do you want me to do? In other words, what is pleasing to God? Um, that's that's what Jesus said about Himself. I always do what pleases the Father. And sometimes, well, I think pleasing myself is more important, and it's not. What is pleasing to God? Now you're right. The rubrics do seem to. Uh, to um, assume that the priest is facing, uh, for much of the Mass, is facing away from the people. But the option is given in the beginning of the Roman Missal. It's kind of interesting. When the priest faces away from the people in a Mass that's an hour long, I found out you're only facing away from the people about 20 minutes. But again, obey your bishop. Okay, moving along here. Let me Let me... Find another letter. Okay, this is from Kirk. Uh, uh, that um, he sends something uh, again. Kirk, I, the the if you send me something on YouTube, I I really can't click on it uh, because I never know where I'm going with a, a relevant radio uh, computer, and I want to be careful. Uh, you know, there are all sorts of bugs and viruses out there, but it's entitled, uh, um, woe to the German church. Kirk, I'll try to look that up on, on YouTube and uh, we'll see what it has to say. All right. This is from just, this letter is from justice in Gaylord. What are a number of prayers or something I can do to be forgiven mortal sin? I know of only two ways to be forgiven a mortal sin. Perfect contrition. Uh, which is an emergency fail-safe. In other words, perfect contrition. It is truly being sorry, not because of the consequence, uh, the loss of heaven, as the, act of, the traditional act of contrition says, uh, I, uh, not the loss of heaven and the pains of hell, but because I have offended you, my God, who are truly good and deserving of all my love. Perfect contrition is a sense of having offended God and being sorry for that and only that. The other is confession. The only and perfect contrition uh, um, is only kind of an emergency measure. Uh, the only real way for a person who is not facing imminent death that I know of to be forgiven for a mortal sin of which they are conscious is the sacrament of confession. Go to confession. That's what you do. Go to confession. And... Uh, don't be afraid to go to confession. The priest is not going to kick you to the curb. Go to confession, Justice. All right, God bless. Uh, music is coming up, which means Drew is coming up. And well, he is really a very musical person.